Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the privilege that we have of coming into your presence. We thank you, Father, for clearing time in your schedule for us. And we pray that the time now that we spend with you will be a means of our understanding more of your will for our lives, of our hearts and minds being open to the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives to fulfill your purpose. And we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I, one of the things, just for a little introduction for those who weren't here last night, one of the things I shared last night, first of all, was how glad I am to be here. I didn't realize, I learned Pastor Steve was an Ohio boy this morning. And I'm, I'm an Ohio boy. I was born here in Ohio and raised here, and I was born again here in Ohio. And so, in fact, I was, I was baptized in... Um, I wasn't baptized into a Seventh-day Adventist church initially here in Ohio because when I went to get baptized, I didn't agree with all that the Seventh-day Adventist believed, if you believe that. And so I asked the pastor to baptize me, just baptize me. No, 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 I didn't ask him. What he told me was, and there's a story behind this that I'm not getting into. He says, when I told him I don't agree with everything the Adventists teach, he said, that's okay, we'll baptize you into Jesus. Now, I don't know how you baptize somebody into Jesus and not the teachings of Jesus. Amen? Amen. But that's the kind of mentality that is prevalent these days. You can't follow Jesus without following the teachings of Jesus, friends. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without having him as the Lord of your life. I want to be saved by you, but don't make me follow you. That doesn't work. If you want Jesus, you have to have all of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And uh, last night... Uh, I shared with you, you know, of course, I have, I have family that's still here in Ohio. I pastored my first church as a lay pastor here in a little town called Fredericktown, Ohio, many years ago. And some of you uh, here, I know a couple of you at least remember that, as you had attended church there while I was there back in the day. One of the things I shared also last night was that a book that had a very powerful impact on my early experience, the very first book I read by Ellen White, was this little book called Early Writings. And it was at a time when I really had a lot of animosity towards Ellen White. Um, and so did my church, and so did my church leaders, and some of you may relate to that. And yes, I went to a professed Seventh-day Adventist church. You thought, oh, you went to the Baptist church, did you? Well, kind of close, maybe. And so I found this book, and when I began to read this book, because I was interested in end-time things, and, and uh, I had heard that, that the woman who wrote this book had had these visions of the end of time, and I was so curious that I read it in spite of my disdain for whatever I thought she stood for. And when I began to read, I knew that it was inspired. I knew it. When I read those words and I read the visions of what was going to take place, I knew it just gripped my heart. Amen. And I praise the Lord that he is able to get through our stubbornness and our bullheadedness and it really touched my heart. And one of the things I read there in her first vision was as she's looking in the world for the Advent people, the angel tells her, you're looking too low. You need to look up. And when she looked up, there they were elevated above the world. And I know that the theme look up is not about looking up to the Advent people. But I'm going to tell you that when we learn to look up to Jesus, we are not going to be down in this world. We're going to be elevated above the world. The Bible says we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And God wants his movement of the last days to be elevated up. He wants the people to be able to see something different in us. 
And so last night we talked about the significance of God's calling on us and the message that he has given to us. And I finished with a statement I want to read to you. It's found in manuscript releases, volume 19, page 41. It's speaking of the message of the three angels that's found in Revelation 14. And it says here, the light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, speaking of the prophet John, is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. That's the Revelation 18 angel, the loud cry angel that comes and says, that gives that last call out of Babylon, come out of her, my people. In it, the book of Revelation, are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in the last days and against the mark of the beast. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. Okay, I'm going to read that again, and I want you to ask yourself, are we doing this as a church? Are we do Let me ask you this question. What was the track record for God's people with the prophets of God? Did they generally follow the prophets of God? What did Jesus say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that... Kill us the prophets. What a title, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, my people, my people, the ones who kill my messengers. Listen to what it says and ask yourself, are we following what God has commissioned us to do here? We are not only to read and understand this message of prophecy and revelation, these three angels' messages, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Do people today need stirred? Yes. Jordan, when you're going door to door, and I know you're running a bunch of MAGA bookers out over the summer, you ran a number of the students we have at Emmanuel out, and we've had them out going door to door. And are we finding that people are generally really open and receptive to spiritual things? There are some. There are some, but the majority of people are rich and increased in goods and in need of nothing. No, I'm a good person. I'm going to be there. They need stirred. Their hearts need stirred. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Okay, what are the things revealed to John? The three angels' messages. Now listen to what it goes on to say. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. I asked the question last night, I'll ask you this morning, what are the usual subjects that the ministers of all the other denominations are dwelling on? The grace of God, the love of God, faith, forgiveness. Are those important things? Absolutely. But it says that preaching those things won't move the people. Why? Because we, as human beings, you know, are, are, we're in this generation, this, this you got to love yourself before you can love anybody else generation. Have you heard that before? I've heard it in the church. you got to love yourself. we got to love ourselves first. Let me ask you a question. Why would Jesus say love your neighbor as yourself if you didn't love yourself? You say, oh, I hate myself. What is Jesus saying? Hate your neighbor? No, the fact of the matter is we're not being honest with ourselves. We love ourselves supremely. Amen. And the Bible points that out. And Jesus says you need to love others like you love yourself. We love ourselves first and others second. If we really loved 
others. We'd be giving this message to others. Now, Jesus uh, tells us through the prophet here that this, the subject that the, the, the ministers dwell on in these other denominations is not moving the people. Why? Because it's not, when you, when you don't have a sense, when you think you're a good person, and this is surprising maybe to some of you here, because I've had this happen when I talk to church members who don't do anything evangelistically or don't do a lot of door knocking or whatever else. They're like, well, I think people are really, they're kind of hurting. They all feel like they're really kind of low down. And no, yeah, you can knock on some doors. And here's one of the questions that we ask when we go out knocking on doors. If you died tonight, do you feel you would be saved? What do you think the majority answer is on that? Yes. Anywhere I've ever been, yes. And the follow-up question is this, what gives you that confidence? And here's the answer. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. They need stirred. And the subjects on which the ministers of nearly every other denomination dwell will not move the people. It says we must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. Now, what are we doing as a people? I'll tell you what we're doing. I'll tell you what we've been doing for the last 20 years, at least. We've been switching over from the three angels' messages to preach what the ministers of nearly every other denomination is preaching. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. How long must an experiment continue before somebody admits that it just didn't work? When I came into the church here in Ohio... I went to a church that was a new, as I mentioned last night, it was not, it was a company. It wasn't part of the sisterhood of churches yet. With this innovative idea on reaching the young people with a lot of jazzed up music and, and, and plays and mimes and puppets and any other numbers of things you can do instead of preaching and singing spiritual songs. That was over 20 years ago. Our church has not gotten stronger our numbers have not gotten greater. Our people are not now not, they're not free from the struggles. It's not like, oh, 20 years ago we used to struggle with things. But now, hey, our people are solid. They don't worry anymore. They have so much confidence and hope in Jesus, so much assurance of salvation. No. So when do we say, you know what, experiments failed? Let's go back and see if there's something we need to be doing. No, we're, we're preaching the very things that we're told here won't move the people. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message if we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people. To circumscribe is literally to draw a circle around yourself. If we, if we hedge ourselves in by political correctness and by so much policy that we can't, and, and by so much, well, I don't want to, you know, there's this group in the church and there's that group in the church and I don't want to cause any more problems. If we hedge ourselves in to the point where we can't give the message, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. Have mercy. God has given us a message, the message of the three angels that is to be proclaimed in our lives, in our words, by everyone here. And so I... We'd like to turn our attention this morning to the first angel's message, the judgment hour message. Part of it historically and what that has to do with us presently. I want to start first of all in 2 Peter 
Our overarching title, as I mentioned last night, was Present Truth or Cunningly Devised Fables. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. That was the warm-up. This is where the message begins. 2 Peter 1, verse 12 says, For this reason... For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the what? The present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. That's the second time he brings that up about reminding us. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a... Reminder of these things after my decease. You, you think he has a burden to remind us of something here. Even though he says, I know you're established in the present truth. Now, listen, if you, if you are preaching to people and you know they're established in something, why in the world do you feel such a burden to continue reminding them? Because, because, the, 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 because of the danger of them forgetting that thing. They know it. They're established in it. He's sure that they know it. He's confident that they're, they're, they're in it and they're believing it. But he fears the possibility so much so that three times now he said, I've got to remind you of this, got to remind you of this, I've got to remind you of this. Do not forget this. Do not forget the present truth that God has established you in. And we talked about this last night a little bit. Present truth as opposed to former truth. And Peter's talking about... Now, 30 years after, he's talking about Christ's coming according to prophecy. In other words, there was a time when the coming of the Messiah was future. It was something that was going to happen, going to happen, going to happen. But now, the Messiah has come. And even for 30 years after the fact, it was still present truth and would continue to be present truth because that which had been foretold had now happened and still had a major impact on the lives of the, of the believers. So just because it happened 30 years ago that Jesus came down on the cross and ascended to heaven didn't, didn't make it any less present truth 30 years later than it was 30 years before because of the vital importance of understanding that Jesus had come and fulfilled in fulfillment of prophecy. In the same way, I want you to catch here that Peter's, in essence, Peter's gospel, his present truth was the first coming. His gospel was a prophetic one. He pulled, the, and, and so was Paul's, by the way. He pulled the prophecies. When you look at Scripture and you look in the book of Acts and you see Paul going from this place and that place preaching, he would demonstrate, and Apollos, and you name it, would demonstrate from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Where would they go to? The prophecies. Jesus himself, the gospel that he preached, was based on the prophecies. Are you aware of that? He began his preaching in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 saying, the time is fulfilled. What time? The time of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Jesus came and was baptized and began his ministry right on time according to prophecy. And he pointed to prophecy and said, this is present truth. The time is fulfilled. In the book Desire of Ages, it puts it this way on page 233. The burden of Christ's preaching was the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Thus, the gospel message as given by the Savior himself was based on the prophecies. It's no different in your day and my day. 
The gospel message, you come to Revelation 14, says, I, I, I looked and he says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, right? The everlasting gospel, preached to the whole earth. And incidentally, when we read that in Revelation 14, we're reading the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 14, where he says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness, and then the end will come. You remember that in the words of Jesus? You go to Revelation 14, what do you see? The gospel, everlasting gospel, preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, tribe, tongue and people. That's all the world. And then right after that, it says, Behold, I saw one sitting on the, like the Son of Man, coming in a cloud of heaven with the sickle in his hand. Right? The end comes. Revelation 14 is a fulfillment of the words of Jesus in that last movement. The gospel message, the present truth message at the end of time is a prophetic message, has prophetic significance. And we sit here today in fulfillment of that prophetic message. We sit here today as a movement of prophecy that God raised up to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. And it was this movement that had power, and it was the prophecies that gave power to the message, that first angel's message. And I want you to go there, Revelation 14 with me. Revelation 14, verse 6. Revelation 14, verse 6. The Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. What kind of voice? Loud. What, what does that imply? Why do you say anything with a loud voice? People can hear you. Yeah, you want to get, thank you, to get people's attention. The message has to be given with a loud voice, has to be given clearly. And the Bible says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and do what? Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And do what? Worship him who made heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. We're going to focus on that here. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. First and foremost, the first angel's message was a call to planet Earth to return to a worship of faithful, heartfelt, sincere worship of the true God. And obviously the warning was given because that was not the condition of the world. In Revelation 14, verse 7, it says the hour of his judgment has come. Now we talked about this a little bit last night. I'm not going to go into the time prophecy only to say that we know that judgment hour message began in 1844. Last night we looked at that a little bit in Daniel 8 that foretold it, and we saw that along with that, that judgment hour came a, a time where God foretold that he would raise up a movement of truth, which he did right on time. In 1844 A.D., the hour of his judgment began... And you have to understand that when that message went out, Christians by and large did not believe in a, a judgment that was taking place present. They thought judgment took place when? At the coming of Jesus. When Jesus came again, that would be judgment. He'd come and they judge the world. And, and they, they, it wasn't the, the whole concept of a, what we call a pre-advent judgment hadn't entered into their thinking. 
the fact that they would actually be living in a time where their lives were being weighed against their professions. Where them call, the calling yourself Christian was not going to be enough in the judgment. And it grabbed the attention of people. Now, in the days that the message first went out, they had no understanding, the understanding that came later, that the judgment had reference to the Day of Atonement, had reference to the work that Jesus was doing as our high priest. That didn't register. What they heard when they heard that message, and God used it, was that Jesus' coming is at hand. At best, in a few years from now. And what happens when you think that Jesus is coming sooner than you thought before? One of the questions we like to ask people going door to door is, if, do you believe Jesus will come to the earth again? For those who say yes, the follow-up question is this. If you thought he was coming tomorrow, would you do anything differently? I'll ask you the same question. Because, you know, we're, we're good at this at Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, he can't come tomorrow, Pastor. He can't come tomorrow because, look, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen prophetically. <laughs> Guess what? The final movements are going to be rapid ones. And you know what? You might not make it till tomorrow. And I might not make it till tomorrow. The Bible says in the book of James, let's not count on tomorrow. Count on today. Now's your time. If you were to meet your maker tomorrow... If that were to be the case, one way or another, would you do anything differently today? And if the answer to that question is yes, why aren't you doing it now? Human beings are terrible procrastinators. And I would dare say, I would dare say that half of the people in this room have things that you know that the Lord has been convicting you about that you have just been saying, okay, in a little while, in a little while, in a little while. And what happened when the first angel's message went out? The hour of his judgment has come, and the prophecies were presented. And the people saw that the prophetic time ended in 1844, and they were living just a few years before that, and they realized, wow, Jesus' coming is at hand, and it gripped their hearts. There was a change in the face of Christianity. And as I mentioned last night, not just in New England somewhere, it was across the globe as people began to weigh their lives in light of the coming of Christ. As they began to consider what lay ahead for them. Now sometimes, I'm going to pass that point. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And I want to show you a comparison with this, this first angel's message with another message in the Bible. The first angel's message was, let me ask it this way. In light of, if you have studied Revelation 14, and you look at those three messages, why, why did the Lord even call for those messages to be given? What's their ultimate purpose? To prepare a people for what? The coming of Jesus. You know, I don't care whose theology says what. The Bible's plain. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And we've got a lot of people today talking about what we can be and what we can't be and, and, and how far we're going to sin up until when. And listen, when Jesus comes again, if you are going to stand in the day of his coming, 
you better reflect his image. John puts it this way, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, behold what manner of, of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Are you familiar with that passage? Go there with me. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Verse 2, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been what? It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, what's that speaking of? That's the coming of Jesus. When He is revealed in heaven with the holy angels coming in the clouds of glory, when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. How do you know we're going to be like him, John? For we shall see him as he is. Without holiness, no man sees the Lord. How are we going to see him as he is? John says, look, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how it all works out. All I know is this. If we're going to see him when, we come, when he comes with our own eyes, we're going to have to be like him by that time. And if we're going to be like him at that time, what needs to happen now? Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself, even as he is pure. Now I throw the caveat out here that I do sometimes that I need, I, I need to and wish I didn't. That we know, we should know, when we talk about purifying ourselves, that doesn't mean that we make ourselves righteous and we make our, ourselves holy. But it does mean this. God's not going to make you holy against your will. And your will involves your choice. And if God's going to make you holy, you've got to choose holy things. When he prompts you, when he prompts me to choose a holy path, he's not going to force you to take the holy path. You've got to take the holy path. And so this message of the first angel was a preparatory message. In fact, all three angels, the three angels' messages build on one another. John sees a second angel. He says another angel followed the first angel. And then the third angel followed them. And that word followed in the Greek means to accompany, to go along with. In other words, the way the Greek picture paints it out, the, the, the Greek language paints it out, if that first angel's message hadn't gone, there wouldn't have been a second or a third. The, everything hinges on the first angel. The first angel goes and preaches his message. The hour of judgment has come and brings to the attention of planet Earth that Jesus is coming and there's a, there's a preparation that needs to take place. And it gripped the hearts of all who heard that message. It was a preparatory message. I want you to see another text on that. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And look what the apostle writes here starting in verse 26. We're in the middle of a thought, but you'll catch it here. Verse 26, Hebrews 9, 26 says, He then would have had to suffer once, or often, often rather, since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, He has appeared. Speaking of Jesus coming, He has appeared to do what? What, what did He come to do? Put away sin. Now that's a powerful statement. Jesus Christ, the apostle says here, came to this earth for the purpose of putting away sin. Is it put away? You guys paused way too long. How many of you have seen the news lately? 
Just flip on the news. Get on CNN for two seconds. Is sin put away? Far from it. Question, will he accomplish what he came to do? Will he accomplish it in you? If you say, well, I'm not sure, you need to have more faith in the work and the power of Jesus. He came to put away sin. Now watch. He came, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why he died on the cross, to put away sin. He didn't have any sin. It wasn't his sin he's trying to put away. It's yours and mine. And it is appointed, verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered what? Once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. And I love the way he puts that. Not to those who wait for him, those who what? Eagerly wait for him. Are you eagerly waiting for the coming of Jesus? Those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, what? In the New King James, it says, apart from sin. Anybody have a different translation? What's it say? Not to deal with sin. Now look, this is the simple picture the Bible's giving. We're looking at the priestly work of Christ, and all it's saying is this. Jesus is working right now as a priest. When he comes again, he's not coming as a priest, saints. He's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. And kings deal with the execution of judgment, not in mercy. And the Bible's just making the point that right now, while Jesus is a priest, now is the time to avail yourself of his priestly work while he's in the act of putting away sin. But if you wait till he comes, he comes to execute judgment and it's too late. So the message of the first angel that the judgment hour had come was communicating to them that the time had come for them to be right, to get right with the Lord while there was time. It stirred the hearts of the people. It made them examine their own experience. It was a message to prepare them for the coming of Christ. In the book Great Controversy, page 369, it says, Like John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. You remember John the Baptist's ministry. Why did he come first? What was his message? What was the message of John? What was, let me put it this way. What was the, yeah, what was the message of John? It was a repentance message. In Acts chapter 19, when, when Paul meets those who had been baptized in the baptism of John, he said, John indeed baptized a baptism unto repentance. John's ministry was necessary to prepare the way for them receiving Jesus. His preaching created the sense and the reality of a need in their heart so that they'd be ready to receive Jesus. And here's the scary thing. The ones who didn't receive John didn't receive Jesus. And so the first angel's message was to come to stir the heart and bring about a sense of need. And if there's no sense of need created, then there's no real desire for Jesus. Listen, friends, there are people who accept Jesus because they say, oh, well, Jesus will give you this and Jesus will give you that. Don't you want to accept him? Sure. And there are multitudes who accept Jesus, not because they feel the need for transformation to be like Jesus, but because somebody sells them Jesus as something that somebody who'll give them something. It doesn't lead to a genuine conversion. So the message, like John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the preachers laid the axe at the root of the tree. Now it's speaking of the first angel's message. And urged all to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Their stirring appeals were in marked contrast to the assurances of peace and safety that were heard from the popular pulpits. What are we hearing today? 
Are we hearing messages that are bringing conviction? Now, I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't like to have my sins pointed out any more than you do. And I like to tell people that I'm preaching to that if something I said convicted you, just know that it convicted me before I ever preached it. But here's the thing. You can go to the doctor's office and have a cancerous tumor and have the doctor tell you about it and feel sad, but at least you can deal with it now. Or you can have the doctor just say, no, everything's fine. Looks good to me. And go away and only find out when it's too late that you had an illness that would destroy your life. God has called for a message to be given that would be a stirring message. It says, it goes on to say that this, these, it, it was in marked contrast to the assurances of peace and safety that were heard from the popular pulpits and wherever the message was given, it moved the people. You remember what I just read from Manuscript Releases, Volume 19? That the messages on, the, the, the subjects on which the ministers in nearly every denomination, other denomination dwells, won't move the people? But our message will be able to move them, to stir them. The message moved the people. The simple direct testimony of the scriptures set home by the power of the Holy Spirit brought a weight of conviction which few were able wholly to resist. A powerful, powerful movement. You see, as I said, unfortunately now like then, a lot of Christians think that all they need is a is a title to heaven. Ellen White calls justification our title to heaven. She calls sanctification our fitness for heaven. Friends, you're not getting into heaven without a fitness for heaven. It's great to have the title for heaven, but you've got to have the fitness for heaven as well. Now, the good news is that both of them come through the faith experience. Amen. I don't understand why even some Adventists will argue this and say, well, let's not talk about sanctification, let's talk about justification. They're both by faith. Acts chapter 26 tells us very clearly that sanctification comes to us by faith, just like justification. The same faith that justifies, sanctifies. And the reason, look, if sanctification wasn't necessary, the Lord just wait till we get up there. The point is that God is trying to prepare and, 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 and renew and restore humanity to fit us for heaven, and this, this concept, I mean, this is like, this is like a bad word these days. I, I was singing recently, away in a manger, right? We're getting close to that time of the year, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And, and it, in our hymnal, the song says, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. But a lot of renditions say, and take us to heaven to live with thee there. Let's not talk about fitting us for heaven. How many of you read the, have sung the, the Bible train song? Um, how's it go? Uh, I'm, I'm getting, getting to, uh, this train is bound for glory. You ever sing that song? This train is bound for glory. Those who ride it must be holy. Oh, no, no. No, now the way it goes is, come aboard and I'll tell you my story. What happened to being holy? Well, let's not talk about being holy. That's too works-oriented. How about the B-I-B-L-E? You ever hear that? We did a VBS this year, and I'm, I'm singing along. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. It, I stand alone. Are you with me on that? I stand alone. No, no, no. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. It tells me of his endless love, the B-I-B-L-E. We just can't. I mean, look, I don't want to imply that we save ourselves. 
But friends, we can't, we're not just, gonna, we're not going to float into heaven. We've got choices to make and we've got to exercise the power of choice. Amen. The book Steps to Christ says it's the, that, the, that the power of decision or choice can bring about an entire change in the life because when I make that choice, the Holy Spirit comes in and acts on it. But the Holy Spirit can't act on something I refuse to choose. And so again, this first angel's message stirred the people because it brought into their mind the reality there needs to be a fitness for heaven, not just a title for heaven. Now I want to read to you this next statement. And this is, what, this is God's purpose in giving this message. This was God's purpose, purpose then, and it's His purpose now. The spirit of worldly... I'm sorry, wrong statement. <clears throat> the first... Angel's message of Revelation 14. This is from Great Controversy, pages 379 and 80. The first angel's message of Revelation 14 announcing the hour of God's judgment and calling upon men to fear and worship Him was designed to separate the professed people of God from the corrupting influences of the world and to arouse them to see their true condition of worldliness and backsliding. Now, if God had to send a message to arouse his people to get them to see their true condition, that tells us that they didn't what? They didn't know it. They didn't see their true condition. What does the Bible say of the Laodicean church? What's her problem? Let me ask you this. If you know the language of Scripture, it says that um, she's wretched and miserable and poor, blind, and naked, right? Is that the real problem with Laodicea? If you read scripture, it's not the real problem. The real problem is because we're all wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, right? All sin and fall short of the glory of God, yes? The problem is it says, and Jesus, when he talks at church, he says, and you know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, if you know you've got a problem, you can go to someone for help. But the church wouldn't admit. The church in this day didn't admit. The church didn't even see. And if the church then didn't see and God sent that message, is it possible that you and me could be so integrated with the world and not see it? Could there be a desire, Pastor Steve touched on a little bit this morning, could there be a desire in our hearts just like that has always been? The greatest hurdle for God's people, a desire to be loved by the world, to be like the world. What did Jesus say? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Does the world love you as its own? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If we're not suffering persecution, what's the reason? Is it possible that we have allowed too much of the world in our lives, in our thinking? You know what one of the scariest things is for a pastor? Facebook. <laughs> because you get on Facebook, and that saint that came to you that morning, you know, happy Sabbath, pastor. And if you Saturday night, you're on there and you're reading what they're doing. And you're thinking to yourself, this is the person I thought they were a believer. Amen. It's depressing <laughs> how much goes on. I, I, that's, that's just a little bit you can see there. As a pastor, I've gone into churches' homes to visit. You have to, saints, when we come to Jesus, something should be drastically different in our lives. I mean, our lives, the life of a believer should not be like, the post-conversion life shouldn't be like the pre-conversion life. If, if imagine I were to come in here, and you were here this morning, and you were waiting, and, 
And, and, and they came up here and they said, well, Pastor Howard's held up today. I don't know. He's going he's gonna to be here, but uh, uh, there's been a delay. And so let's sing a few more songs. And 45 minutes goes by and I finally come in here. My suit's all rumpled. My sleeve is torn off. I'm dirty and, 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 and uh, got smudges all over my face. And, and I'm scuffed up a little bit here and here. And I come up and I say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm late. But let me tell you what happened. I was on my way, honestly. And I, I, was, I was on the other side of the road out there just taking a walk, and sometimes I get lost in my thoughts. And um, while, while I was coming across the road, there just happened to be this semi that was coming down about 55 miles an hour. And it's, hard, it's way over the speed limit. I don't know what he was thinking. And, and me, I just was lost in my thought. And I walked out into the road just in time to hear, boom, and that, hand, that thing just slammed me. And eyes went rolling over here, and, and uh, I, I have to tell you, for a little bit, I didn't even know what hit me, honestly. And I had to get up, and I brushed myself off, and uh, tried to get my thoughts together. <sighs> but I'm here. Would you believe that? Would anybody believe that? I hope nobody would. Semi doesn't hit anything going 55 miles an hour that has much left. Okay? And see, that's the reality. And follow me closely here. You know that. You know that there's no way that I could have had an encounter with something that big and stayed the same. And yet we're going to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and be the same as we were before? Impossible. Impossible. And I think back on my my Christian experience. See, one of the things that, that was happening with the Judgment Hour message that they didn't first understand, that we more fully understand now, is it was redirecting their eyes up to what Jesus was about to do in their behalf as he went into the last phase of his own work in heaven preparatory to his coming. And let me explain something to you. As Jesus entered into that most holy place experience, his primary work we can use terms like judgment, and I'm not going to get into all the detail, but I want you to understand this. Primary work there is to prepare you to reflect his image, to be ready to see him when he comes. Hallelujah. That's what he's there to do. And so when you have need to be like Jesus, guess what? Praise God. Now he's working to make you ready for his coming. Their eyes were directed, and here's the thing. When you are directed to Jesus and you begin to behold Jesus, what happens the closer we get to Jesus? What happens the closer we get to Jesus? Have you read it in the book Steps to Christ? Page 64 and 65, the test of discipleship. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. For your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. Anybody here play basketball or ski or do any kind of sport? <laughs> okay, pick your sport. Take basketball. I'm, <laughs> I don't even try at basketball. But let's just say you're out... You know, and you're shooting some hoop. And for me, it would be, it really would be a miracle. Like, I'm out shooting some hoops one day, and, you know, I'm, oh, they're, they're going in. 
a miracle of miracles. And I shoot again, and it goes in, and I'm feeling, you know, good. I get a couple, maybe three free throw shots, and, and they go in, and I'm feeling pretty good today. And then let's say some guy like a Michael Jordan shows up, who is arguably one of the best players that ever has been, and he begins shooting. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> now suddenly I feel very lousy on my best day. Yes or no? What do you expect will happen when we come in? Now listen, Michael Jordan didn't come up and start badmouthing me. He didn't have to. As soon as he got there, his presence, the kind of player he is, overshadowed my awesome terribleness at the game. Jesus, it's not like Jesus comes and even attempts to come and condemn us, but the fact of the matter is, when I come closer into the presence of Jesus, what am I going to see? But his perfection. And in the presence of his glory and perfection, what do I look like? I can't help but see my contrast. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. Now listen to the next sentence. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power. If you get nothing else out of this message, you've got to get this piece. You've got to get this. This will save you so much woe and heartache in your experience. I'm going to read it again. This is evidence, this, this seeing your own faultiness because you've come closer to Jesus. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power and that the vivifying or the, the, the life-giving influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. Okay, so if I begin to, if I come to Jesus and coming to Jesus, I see my sinfulness. Seeing my sinfulness means that Satan's delusion has lost its power. Then what's his delusion? Then I'm not sinful. Right? That's his delusion. Oh, you're not so bad. You're a good person. You're a good person. Why would the devil want me to believe that? Well, I don't need a savior when I'm a good person. I don't need to go to Jesus when I'm a good person. And, and let me explain it a little bit further. We could be a Pharisee kind of good person like this. And, and don't, you know, we could, I shouldn't even use that word because Pharisees thought they were, they had it all together and they were perfect. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. You go to Luke chapter 18 and here's what you find out about the Pharisee. Thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as those guys. They didn't think they had it all together. They were just better than those guys. And see, when we say, I'm a good person, well, I may not be the best. I may not do everything right, but at least I'm not then I really don't need a savior, at least as much as those people do. So that's the devil's delusion, is that we just don't see our sinfulness. And what happens is there are too many Christians who don't understand how this works, and so they begin to read their Bible, they begin to pray, they want to come closer to the Lord, and what begins to happen? They begin to feel terrible about themselves. They start to see that they're so hideously deformed in sin. And they say, well, something's wrong with me. Yeah, you're right. But nothing new. The reality is that, as it says here in this statement, what's happening is the closer you're coming to Christ, the Holy Spirit is beginning to awaken your mind and your thoughts. 
And as you begin to see your sinfulness, that's evidence to you that the Spirit of God has begun to work in your life. It's good news, not bad news. And the more of your sinfulness you see, and I'll use the words of A.T. Jones, one of our pioneers, you should praise God that you have so much of the Holy Spirit in you that you can see so much of your badness. Right? The closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we're going to appear. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power and the Spirit of God is arousing you. No deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. The soul that is transformed by the grace of Christ will admire his divine character, but if we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. I'll never forget my conversion experience. My life, first of all, all my, in the words of Daniel the prophet, all my comeliness turned in me into corruption. Every shred of what I thought was good suddenly didn't amount to anything. All my righteousnesses appeared as filthy rags in a moment. Like Peter who fell down at the feet of Jesus, I said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For the first time in my life, I sensed my unlikeness to Christ. And I, for the first time, had a desire for something new, something different. I didn't, all the things in my life that my life had been composed of, all my worldly entertainment and conversation and everything else, suddenly be, began to be not only empty and unsatisfying, but offensive to me. And I wanted to distance myself from it. That's what that first angel's message was designed to do then, and that's what it's designed to do now. The Lord wants his people to see their need of being like him. He wants us to become tired and even disgusted with the things of this world that not only don't bring satisfaction, but are destroying us. Habits and pastimes, as I mentioned, as a pastor, I would go, I'd, I, and when I became a Christian, listen, I, didn't, I, I told you the church I went to. I never had anybody come and give me a Bible study on music or media or language or dress or anything. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite. When I became convicted and I said, maybe I shouldn't be listening to some of this music, my pastor would be like, my guys in the church, the elders would be like, ah, pff, don't worry about that. But I knew that somebody bigger was telling me those things are of the world. And so I began to change. And let me make something clear to you. Sometimes we, you know, people will say, well, you know, you don't, you're going to get on working all those details in your life. You're going to be majoring in minors. What you need to do is focus on Jesus. Friends, when you've got a pile of worldliness cluttered up so high you can't see over it, you can't look at Jesus. And in the process of conversion, sometimes Jesus directs you to dismantle the pile so that you can get a clear view. And so I've had people say, no, 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 you come to Jesus first and then you get rid of all that stuff. Sometimes all that stuff is in the way. And Jesus will direct you to get those things out of your life that are coming between you and him. One of the things that I was asked to emphasize this weekend was that importance of that devotional time with Christ. 
And this, is, this whole experience of coming to Jesus, I mean, that's where you have that encounter. That's when you see this, the, the closer you come to Jesus. Where do we come to Jesus? How do we come closer to Jesus? It's not meditating. Om. It's just we open the Word. We begin to read the Word. We begin to apply the things. That, we begin to see Jesus revealed to us in the Word. The Word became flesh. It's in the written Word that we see the living Word. But I have so many people, and I've had the opportunity to teach, and pastor young and old, who come and they, they, they say, I'm not getting anything out of my devotional life. If you're not getting anything out of your devotional life, if you're spending time, trying to spend time in the Word, and you're not getting anything out of it, it's very likely that it's because you're filling your life with things that are ruining your appetite for spiritual things. You can't be eating the garbage of the world and then desire the things of God. You can't be feeding yourself with the world's media and the world's music and the world, worldly relationships and expect that you're going to find pleasure in spiritual things. And the first angel's message was designed to bring conviction to the hearts of God's people to help them to see their need to give all to Christ their need to let and, and put aside the worldliness that they had allowed to come into their lives, God was directing them to put those things aside. And we see it in our lives and we see it in our church. Is there worldliness in the church today? Listen, friends, I, I've, got, I've got on a regular basis Seventh-day Adventist leaders that are more concerned about worship styles, about who's going to be ordained, women's ordination, that are more concerned about and, and these same people that say, oh, I've got this burden. This is my burden. Okay, fine. I'm not going to condemn your burden. But these same people have no burden for the three angels' messages. In fact, oftentimes, their desire is that we need to not be as much about those things anymore. Spirit of prophecy, that's old news. We don't need that anymore. Uh, some of this, we get so, all this uh, fundamental Bible stuff, you know, look, everybody has a different walk. And these are the kind of things we're hearing. And the message that once was given with a certain sound to stir the heart is now given with such uncertainty it doesn't do anything. If you read in the book Desire of Ages, Elamite talks about the teaching of the scribes and the, and, and the Pharisees and contrasts it with the teaching of Jesus. The Bible puts it this way. The teaching of Christ was he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. In the book Desire of Ages, Ellen White describes it this way. She says that the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, they taught that the scriptures might be taken to mean one thing or exactly the opposite. But Jesus taught the scriptures as of unquestionable authority. So she contrasts the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees was, oh, well... That's your interpretation, and this is my interpretation. You know, I guess we can both be right. So let me ask you the simple question. Is the teaching we hear in the church today more like the teaching of Jesus or more like the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes? How many times do we sit around and hear this nonsense where we can't, listen, there's just no, there's nothing solid anymore. The Seventh-day Adventists are even beginning to question creation. Oh, well, you know, I know the Bible says this, but... 
Saints, the first angel's message was to strike right at the heart of all of our... You know what the bottom... You know what the, really is at the bottom of all that? What is the bottom of all that? You can read it in Steps to Christ in the chapter, What to Do with Doubt. And at the bottom of all that is a love for sin. That's what it is. In, the, in all this desire, we're going to debate about worship styles. We're going to debate about media. And do we need to be so particular about dress and all of these things? All it is is a love for sin. And the first angel's message comes right home to today's church and says, look, shake out of it. The hour of his judgment has come. The judge standeth at the door. Are you ready? The excuses that we make, let's think about making them to him. And I think if we do that, okay, so Jesus is going to come and the excuse I'm making about this or that practice, I'll make it to him. Ooh, that wouldn't fly. You know, let's be in earnest with our own souls. You remember when Jesus went to the woman at the well? I'm going to close with this thought. You remember the woman at the well in John 4? And, and they get into talking together. And Jesus, in that conversation, talks to the woman at the well. And he says to her, as they're right in the midst of this, you know, really good conversation. And she is open. Give me that water, right? That living water. I want it. And Jesus says to her, go and call your husband. That, I, this whole thing is amazing to me. Go and call your husband. Well, wait a minute. This woman is interested in what he has to say. Now, honestly, what kind of counsel would you typically have when you're trying to reach somebody and you're offering maybe glow track or something and then you strike up a conversation and they're like, oh, I'm really interested. I'd like some Bible studies. Would counsel usually, would the counsel that somebody give you usually say, yeah, now point out their sin? <laughs> you know, wait on that, right? No, go and call your husband. Well, maybe Jesus didn't know. No, he did know because she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you've spoken rightly in that you don't have a husband. And saying you don't have a husband, the fact is, you've had five guys and the man you're with right now isn't your husband. You ever wonder why he did that? Because Jesus knew, just like this, just, this, is, this, is the, this is the essence of what the first angel's doing. Jesus knew that unless she was brought to a conviction of her personal sin, she could not experience a thorough conversion. Listen, we, everybody follows God in one area or another. Everybody, non-believers follow something that God says. What matters is that we follow what God says on those issues where he's pointing them out in our life and saying, I need you to give this over to me. So the woman at the well, he tells the woman at the well about this situation. Your man you were living with is and your husband. And then she says, um, <clears throat> sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Listen, you Jews say that we ought to worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say we ought to worship in the holy mountain. Who's right? Now, did you catch what she just did? Not only did she change the subject, but did she, listen carefully. She changed the subject from her personal sin to an issue of controversy. One of those doctrinal points that she knew most people would argue about so much that it would never get back to her personal sin. The equivalent is like this. When the conviction comes to my heart, I just throw some idea out in Sabbath school class because I know as soon as I throw it out there, they're going to debate over it back and forth and we'll never get back to the convicting subject. And I'm afraid too often today, we allow ourselves to debate and some of us love it more than others. Just debate about these different things that we'll argue about points of theology. 
and we won't be honest with God about our own souls standing with him. And my appeal to you this morning is this. My friends, the hour of his judgment has come. The Lord Jesus, his coming is at hand. Are you ready for his coming? If you were to answer the question I asked earlier, if he were to come tonight, if he were to come tomorrow and you knew that, would you do anything differently? And even as I ask the question, the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of your hearts right now about that something that you need to do differently. My friends, what would keep you from doing it now? What would keep you from saying right now, yeah, I need to make that change. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. I've been putting that decision off too long. I've been making excuses for that sin too long, and now is the time. And now I want to make it right with Jesus, and I don't want to wait any longer. I want to see him face to face when he comes. And I want to hear those words spoken, well done, good and faithful servant. What would keep you from giving it all over to Jesus now? From saying, Lord Jesus, take my whole heart and transform it and fit me for heaven to live with thee there. Is that your desire today? If it is, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And as we stand, the Lord Jesus knows and he sees into our hearts and he gives grace and his grace is sufficient for anything that we struggle with to fit us for his coming. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, Father, as we've considered the message of the first angel, a message designed to bring conviction of sin, deep conviction of sin, a message designed to lead us to look at our lives in contrast to the beauty and the excellence of Christ. And we can only see our deformity in that contrast. But Father, as we do, you've given us that open invitation to give all, to give all to you so that we can be fitted for Jesus' return. And Father, you have seen the response today. You know the hearts of each one here. You know if we have been holding on to something and just procrastinating as it's so often in our nature. But today, Father, today I pray that we would procrastinate no longer. That today we would follow through with this decision here to put that thing in our lives that has been that sin which so easily beset us, to put it aside and to give our all to Jesus and to the cause of truth. And Father, as we do so, as we do so, even here in our weakness, we look to your strength and we trust in your words. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. <clears throat> Father, make your strength perfect in our weakness today. And we thank you and praise you for the privilege of receiving Christ and of being prepared to stand in the day of his coming. We ask and pray these things in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.